uh, it's evening here in Slovenia. It's afternoon in South Bend, I think. It's uh, four o'clock in the afternoon here in South Bend. Okay. We're on New York time. Yeah. Okay, let me introduce myself. I'm Father Andrei Voncina, a parish priest, writing for a Slovenian weekly newspaper from uh, Gorizia in Italy. Now I can't go there. <laughs> so it's a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's called Novi Glas, and I'm also a teacher at our diocesan uh, high school in Vipava, Skofiska Gymnasia Vipava. And uh, today is the feast of Saint Joseph, the saint patron of all fathers, both carnal and spiritual. And we have the honor and pleasure to speak to a special father, I think, and grandfather also. So Dr. E. Michael Jones, I suppose you do not do not have any visits by your children and grandchildren because of the quarantine. No, don't tell anybody, but I've had children and grandchildren <laughs> visiting me on a regular basis. But don't tell Homeland Security, all right? All right, all right. Um, shall we say a prayer to our Saint Patron now? Yes. Okay, let's go. In the name of the Father wow. and the Son and the Holy Ghost. Amen. Be mindful of us, O blessed Joseph, and intercede for us with thy foster son by the pleading of thy prayer. Do thou, in like manner, render the blessed Virgin Mary, thy spouse, gracious unto us, for she is the mother of him, who with the Father and the Holy Ghost liveth and reigneth, world without end. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. This is the prayer of St. Bernardine of Siena. Yes. I mentioned him him. in my book on capitalism. He was an outstanding opponent of usury and also convinced uh, the great usurer um, from Florence, Cosimo de' Medici, to give a significant amount of money to the church. And they built the Franciscan monastery in uh, Florence there. Uh, and had Giotto paint the murals on the monastery. So those were the days when usurers had to pay back the money if they wanted to be forgiven. Yeah, and uh, Saint Bernardine was always preaching in uh, in the ghetto, as I know. Yes. In those days, uh, they were preaching to uh, to have Jews uh, become Catholic, maybe. That's right. That's right. So let's go to our things. In the study of history, we have a special uh, branch called uh, cryptopolemology, where crypto means hidden or underground, and polemos, we know, means war. So uh, it's the study of hidden or underground wars or movements going on in the history of mankind. Uh, it's not really hidden, okay, but uh, meaning we we wouldn't see it, but those uh, movements are uh, done by deceiving the people, as I understand, like the Kulturkampf in Germany and our defunct Habsburg Empire. We do have such wars going on and on. 
with some people re researching those wars and you, Dr. Jones, are the one of them and the the German uh, word in, in English uh, is culture wars. Am I correct? Yes, it's my translation of Kulturkampf. Kulturkampf was open. There was nothing covert about Kulturkampf. It, it began right after the unification of Germany and basically Bismarck decided that in order to be a German, you had to be a Protestant who believed in the Enlightenment. Uh, in other words, Prussia as uh, that state had been defined by Hegel and other people. Uh, and that ignited a conflict that was a real serious conflict. Uh, it led to um, driving Jesuits out of, of Germany. It led to a whole order of nuns being uh, ordered to leave Germany. They sailed to England on a ship called the Deutschland and the ship sank in the estuary of the Thames. And that was the occasion for one of the greatest poems in the English language uh, by G the Jesuit Gerard Manley Hopkins. It's called The Wreck of the Deutschland. So it was a real serious uh, cultural battle over who was what it meant to define who was going to define what it meant to be a German after the unification. Uh, and it ended about 10 years after it started when uh, basically Bishop von Kettler persuaded Bismarck that the real enemy of the German state were the communists and that the Catholics uh, could be friends and loyal citizens. And uh, he also persuaded Bismarck to institute health insurance and uh, Social Security old age pensions. And once he did that, Germans stopped, stopped emigrating to America. And so if, if he had done it sooner, I wouldn't be here. Uh, I'm an American. I'm, a, uh, I have half, I'm half German and half Irish. And both of those uh, groups came here because America needed cheap labor. That's the story of Kulturkampf. So it was not a form of covert warfare. Yeah. Okay. It was cultu cultural warfare. Yeah. Uh, in past days... Uh... You've talked to Tim Kelly, I think, about, or, or who was it, about uh, the virus. Yes, that was yeah. Tim Kelly. We just did that yeah. show last week. Okay, yeah. okay. Now, that is uh, classic. That is classic covert warfare. Yeah. That is classic. Uh, mm -hmm. As of uh, right now, I think every, there's a consensus forming that uh, this virus, uh, covid 19 is basically a bioweapon that uh, was being worked on in both the United States, Canada, and China. And it either escaped accidentally. Uh, there was a lot of smuggling of biomaterial from uh, Winnipeg and Harvard, Cambridge to uh, Wuhan, or it was uh, released deliberately as a, uh, an attack on the Chinese people. I, I can't I can't uh, say one way or the other at this point, but I think the consensus is that it was a weapon that somehow escaped into the population. Yeah, we can say uh, some people are quite content uh, with the use of all of the entertainment as part of the infotainment and terror media system. I'm sure everybody wants to be amused and entertained today. That's probably the reason for, for all the free access to otherwise locked channels. A friend, Italian journalist, said uh, sh 
she didn't want to be entertained, but uh, she wanted to face reality. What can you say about all this circus uh, going on? Well, one of the uh, effects of the virus has been uh, an increased um, access to pornography. Uh, we are p basically, we've reached a situation here uh, in the United States uh, right now where you're pretty much confined to your home. This happened in Italy before. I don't know what the situation in Slovenia is. But uh, you you have, uh, there. Let's, let's assume, I, I assume that this is a dangerous virus. It's not a hoax. It was created as a bioweapon, so there it's therefore it's very dangerous. Uh, and so the state should take some type of measures against it. But at that point, um, the state takes over and it acts according to criteria which are not compatible with the criteria that I hold as a, a Catholic. So the net result here is you're confined in your home and you have increased access, free access to pornography and your religious services have been banned. Now, this uh, is not a coincidence, I would say. So you have something that may be an accidental breakout of a disease or it may be a bioweapon that was launched, but then you have the implementation or the weaponization of this fact, and it turns out that uh, the state is implementing a, a certain agenda that is contra contradicts the ad agenda of the Catholic Church. Uh, tragically, the Catholic Church is going along with it. So the best paradigm that I can think of in describing this is what I've talked about before of what happened in Ramallah. When the uh, Israelis came in, the Israeli army came into Ramallah, they took over the TV stations and they started broadcasting pornography. Now, that was a more extreme situation, but it's the same situation uh, in degree. It's a question of degree and not of kind here. In the situation in Ramallah, the army uh, is there it's a foreign army. They have snipers on top of the hospital. And if the Palestinians go out, they get shot. Uh, they are confined to their homes. The only access they have to information is the television. And the only thing they can see on television is pornography. This proves that pornography is not an expression of freedom or any type of liberation. It's a weapon, a weapon that gets used. It's a cult weapon of cultural warfare in the arsenal of cultural warfare. So now we have the implementation of something similar on a worldwide basis. You have people who are confined to their homes, who have now unlimited access to pornography, but who cannot go to religious services because they have been banned. This is uh, an intolerable situation. And uh, Archbishop Vigano has uh, criticized it. He just recently issued a letter saying that the church has capitulated shamefully to the state in agreeing to these conditions. Yeah. So uh, my friend uh, from school years, a personal trainer and dietist said to me in an uh, interview that uh, we're an instant population. We are acting uh, as the British band uh, Queen sings. Uh, I want in all and I want in now. So uh, the current uh, situation is good in that way, but I think uh, the intoxicated uh, population has some issues uh, dealing with the sudden circumstances they're in. What is your thing? 
Well, I think what 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 the, why is this happening right now? I think the best example uh, that allows us to understand why this happening is happening right now is France. If you remember, France was in a state of revolutionary ferment for about two years. Why was that? How do we know that? Because people were on the streets. People were demonstrating on the streets. And now this virus has given Macron the excuse to basically shut people down, shut down that that uh, that uh, revolution. People can't go out in the streets. They have to download a permission slip to get out on the streets. This virus, he has instrumentalized this virus to basically end the revolution, the veil of vest revolution in France. Now, what happened here uh, over the course of the last year? Uh, over the course of the last year, I would say that the oligarchs who control our culture lost control of the narrative uh, on the Internet. What we saw this past year was a battle over what people were calling either free speech or hate speech on the Internet. Uh, it became a heated battle because people were not following the speech codes that the oligarchs wanted. Uh, the main issue, one of the main issues, as I said, was hate speech. Hate speech is a Jewish creation. It, is, it was created by a group in America called the Anti-Defamation League. Uh, the main accusation that they would level against people was that they were anti-Semitic. Anti-Semitism uh, means any speech that the Jews don't like. This is an indication of how they keep control over the narrative. I gave uh, the I did a book tour in Poland when the Polish edition of Libido Dominandi came out, Sexual Liberation and Political Control. And uh, I was in Torun and the question period, a man stands up and he says, I hear you're an anti-Semite. And everybody kind of gasped. And then he said, that must mean you have something important to say. So the Poles had some type of understanding of the way this was instrumentalized. The fact that the church did not back down and supported me during that book tour uh, resulted in a victory for the church, for Catholics, when we defeated gay marriage. So gay marriage is not going to happen in Poland. And I think I played some small role in that. But what you're seeing here now is, I think, an attempt basically to gain control of the narrative. Let's face it. Why are we talking about a virus now? Because those that controls the narrative. Everybody's talking about this virus now. That's all you read about in the news, which means that they've obliterated any other discussion. There are, all discussions have been removed, including the discussion that uh, we're trying to take place which means that they, the oligarchs have regained control of the narrative and they are now determining what people think and what people are talking about. So it's a victory for the oligarchs. Okay, let's go to our basic topic, to music. As we look, to, as we look at music, we can say it has always been part of mankind. We can even translate that uh, the Lord has sung the universe into existence. But uh, we know of uh, the primal fall of the man, which had its impact to the music too. So uh, we had uh, Dionysian music, which has been regulated by the application of the logos. 
can you tell us a little what was the situation before that and who put an end to the uh, chaotic, we can say, situation? I believe we find this in Euripides and in the Bacchae. Yes. Yes. Well, uh, they, uh, Plato understood that there was, that logos applied to sound. Uh, that there were that there were certain tones or certain that you could make that would have meaning. Uh, this is a, a, a great breakthrough. He, he felt that there were four modes and that the modes had these sounds had particular meanings. Some of them were good for uh, getting you to march into battle. Some of them were uh, good for seducing women. And so they should be prohibited. They promoted sensuality and so on and so forth. And Plato understood that, and as a result, uh, Socrates, who was, in a sense, his, his mouthpiece, said that certain modes, certain types of music should be banned from the Republic because those, that music is subversive. And uh, I think he was right. I think he was right. Music has a power to go, to bypass uh, your, your understanding, to bypass reason. It can go directly to your emotions and it can structure your emotions and make you do things. Uh, and one of the things that makes you do sometimes is jump up and dance. Sometimes you can't help yourself. You know, sometimes you just jump up and start dancing because the music is so powerful. Uh, and the Greeks understood this. And so there's this constant battle in Greece between those passions and reason. Reason at this point in time has been weakened by the fall. They didn't, they didn't know about the fall. They didn't have that concept of original sin, but they knew that there was a weakness there. Uh, and, and, and the Greeks wrote plays about it. And one of the Greeks who wrote a play about this was Euripides, who wrote the play called the Bacchae. And the Bacchae is about the Greek god, the Asiatic god who came over from Turkey and uh, what is now Turkey and uh, <clears throat> seduced the women. Because God is the, he's the God of uh, wine, intoxication, sexual excess. And he shows up in Thebes. And when he does, the women leave their looms where they weave their cloth. And Pentheus is the, the uh, king of Thebes. And he realizes as soon as the women leave their looms, the civilization is threatened with collapse. Women cannot leave their houses. That's the basis of society. And so he decides he's got to do something. He says, determine, he captures Dionysus and has him brought before him. And Dionysus uh, turns the tables on Pentheus. And he turns the tables on, makes, in other words, he makes Pentheus his captive. And he does that by appealing to his prurient interest because he knows all men are fallen. All men have difficulty controlling their passions, especially the sexual passion. And so he says to Pentheus, would you like to see the women dancing naked on the mountainside? And Pentheus says, sure. Good idea. And so uh, uh, Dionysus says, OK, put on a dress. And he walks through the town with wearing a dress. He loses all of authority, gets up to the hill. The women are dancing naked. They see him. He, after Dionysus tells him to climb a tree, they drag him down. They tear him limb from limb. 
And the end of it is uh, his mother is holding his head in her lap. And her father comes on stage and he asks her, what do you see? And she says, it's a lion. It's a trophy because she's intoxicated and she can't see clearly. And then the intoxication wears off and he says again, what do you see? And she says, I see horror. I see suffering. I see grief. And that's the message for any society that allows women to leave their looms and worship Dionysus. That's what happens. And that's, of course, what happened to the West. And the book uh, that I wrote on this is Dionysus Rising. And it begins with the revolution of 1848. Uh, and Richard Wagner was a participant in that revolution. He was a revolutionary. He wanted to overthrow the government of Saxony. It didn't work out. He had to flee. He went to Switzerland, escaped, even though uh, the, wanted by the authorities, he escaped to Switzerland. And he spent the next couple of years trying to figure out what happened. Why did that revolution fail? And he came up with two, two artifacts. The first one was uh, Das Rheingold, which is the mythic explanation of capitalism. Because capitalism was the cause of the revolution of 1848. It wasn't the Ancien Regime in France. And the other uh, uh, artifact was Tristan und Isolde. And Tristan und Isolde was basically Wagner saying, look, I failed as a political revolutionary, but I think I'm going to see succeed as a sexual revolutionary. And that's precisely what he did. Tristan und Isolde swept through the German-speaking world like a virus. It was, it was a kind of musical virus. And the, the, the crucial aspect uh, that he used was uh, the chromatic scale which is different than the diatonic scale. It has less uh, uh, direction to it. It's equal steps, half steps, and the diatonic scale is unequal steps and it has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And the best way you can see this, uh, this conflict is not in Tristan und Isolde, but in the later version of uh, Tannhäuser, where you have a, a, a man who is torn between the Venusberg, uh, the, the, the isolated... Uh, sealed off realm of sexual liberation inside a mountain, a kind of like a cave inside a mountain where you can fulfill all of your sexual desires. And that theme is, is, is uh, chromatic and it just goes on and on forever. And yet he's torn because he's drawn, the pilgrims come by, the pilgrims are going to Rome, they're obviously Christians. And that is a, one of the strongest melody in the whole opera, uh, the Pilgrim Chorus. It's a great piece of music, absolutely great piece of music. It's something that you hear it for the first time and you just stop dead in your tracks and you think, what's something, something significant is going on here. And that expressed the conflict between this Christianity where there's a logos to music and there's a logos to everything and the alternative, which is, as Wagner, the famous aria, O Zinc Hernida. Nacht der Liebe. In other words, where you you don't want the light, you want darkness, because darkness is going to cover cover over your sin, which is in uh, Tristan Isolde is the sin of adultery, and that launched this virus into 
uh, Western music, which is the most important music in the world, and it had consequences which uh, continue to this day. Okay. Uh, we see that uh, revolution, always uh, Gnostic one, you can, you, you explain to us this thing. So, um, it always um, tries to to subvert things. And also we can say philosophy plays a key part in human life. It's always a question of the mentality one has put as the motor of his existence. In literature, the period we are talking about is called Romanticism. And... An Italian uh, Catholic psychotherapist, uh, Aristotelic, the mystic one, to be more specific, Roberto Marchesini, said uh, that at the end, uh, the question is always only one. Will she give it to him or not? What was the philosophical underground of Wagner and uh, Nietzsche and so on? You're talking <laughs> yes, in the book well. also. Yes, I said I said that uh, Wagner unleashed a virus, and that, that's yes, that's the best. It's a, it was a cultural virus, a musical virus, that infected uh, pretty much the entire German population, but more the, the intellectual aspect of that uh, part of that, which had fallen on hard times because the great champion of German idealism, uh, I'm sorry, Hegel, died in 1831, and no one could replace him. No one had the power to replace him, and so. Uh, we have a, 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 a world of Germans living, listening to Wagnerian music. And one of them was a young man by the name of Friedrich Nietzsche, whose father was a Lutheran pastor. And he was a very musically talented guy, he played the piano, he even composed uh, music on his own. And he fell completely under the spell of Wagner. So much so that I, I think this is a, a, a story. Some people say it's apocryphal. But uh, I think it's true that uh, Nietzsche, after playing Tristan on Isolde on the piano, went out and deliberately infected himself with syphilis uh, as a commitment to sexual liberation, as his commitment, a, a, an ir irrevocable commitment to sexual liberation. This is, this is the premise of um, uh, Thomas Mann's novel, Dr. Faustus. Thomas Mann knew the story. He thought it was true. And he based a whole novel on, on that on that premise. And uh, the main the main character in um, Dr. Faustus is a conflation of Nietzsche and Arnold Schoenberg, who was the man who was a musical student of uh, Wagner as well, and uh, took Wagner's chromaticism into eight tonality and then beyond that into 12 tone music and basically destroyed the Western tradition of music in an act of uh, Jewish revenge, which we can get into if you want. But Nietzsche, as uh, as I said, uh, took on then the philosophical explication of Wagner. And the book that he wrote uh, to do that was called The Birth of Tragedy. It was his first book. It was based solely, pretty much, it was based on uh, his understanding of Wagner and his understanding of Greek classical uh, literature, including the Bakke, I'd say especially the Bakke, uh, and 
it tur- turned out it wrecked his educa- it wrecked his career as a, an academic, uh, but it established it, his career as a philosophical revolutionary. And at this point, this revolutionary virus, let's say, jumped from the musical sphere into the philosophical sphere. And at that point, it cre- uh, had other progeny uh, all the way up to uh, Michel Foucault, basically any 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 of the people that we take seriously as philosophers in the 20th century, all take uh, in the continental tradition, all go back to Nietzsche in one way or another. And what does that mean? It means that philosophy became an expression of hatred of logos, which is exactly what Nietzsche did at this point. He he hated he 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 hated Socrates. And he used to he used to attack Socrates Christ because he felt that they that he conflated them into one person. And, and if you ask, well, what's what does Socrates and Christ have in common? Well, the answer is Logos. They were proponents of Logos and Nietzsche hated it and, uh, you know, hated it to his dying day. He went insane toward the end of his life, uh, wrote a number of books uh, and uh, again, that was the premise for Dr. Faustus, because uh, Adrian von Leverkuhn was going to thought that when you in your mind, when you got terminal tertiary syphilis in the mind, you get this sudden burst of intelligence. And he was going to write this great piece of music. So at this point, you had a, you established the revolutionary tradition, the anti-Logos tradition in both music and philosophy. And Germany was the headquarters of both of those things. OK. Uh, our friend, a scholar name, named uh, Ivo Kerge, uh, PhD in philosophy, said uh, that uh, the philosophers of uh, the, the mod- modern period practically uh, returned to the pre-Socratic era, which is correct, and uh, I, I'm not uh, the only one to think so. Um, as the philosophy returned to sensualism, feelings, and nihilism, the music too went uh, that way. The classical music first becomes uh, more and more sensual, then more and more nihilistic, and it uh, loses its soul, so to speak. People uh, then turn to African music, being fond of empty classical music. Am I correct? Yes, yes. Yes, George George Antile said uh, uh, he was in Paris after World War One. He said if we had to listen to one more piece by Schoenberg, we all would have committed suicide. And he said so it was with great relief that we welcomed the first jazz band, Negro jazz band, into Paris after World War One. And so at this point, so at this point, you see the revolutionary tradition jumping out of the classical music tradition. Classical music at that point uh, was, uh, this was right at the moment when Schoenberg took uh, 12-tone music from Josef Matthias Hauer and he started composing 12-tone music that no one could understand, no one could appreciate. It's not music, it's anti-music. And uh, at that point, nobody wanted to listen to it anymore. And at the same time, you have the emergence of this new kind of music from America, Negro jazz, which was appealing. It, it was appealing, certainly compared with the, it wasn't deep. It wasn't sophisticated. It wasn't as profound as Wagner's music, but it was appealing. 
And at this point, people would rather have something that's appealing rather than something that wanted to commit, commit suicide. And so at that point, you have a, a rise of a new music that parallels the rise of American political power and then finally culminates in America as the ruler of the entire world. And uh, over this period of time, American music got promoted. What is the characteristic of jazz and all its variations? It's sensual. The most important part of it is the rhythm, which is the sensual part of music. This was completely missing from Wagner, completely missing, because the, the, his, the vehicle for Wagnerian sexual liberation was, was chromaticism. And rhythm played virtually no part in that. And so now you have music that is primarily rhythmic in its in its force. And and this is, in a sense, much more sensual than the intellectual chromaticism of Wagner. And so therefore, it had wider appeal. Uh, uh, and why? And uh, eventually it would have worldwide appeal. And so what you had was the rise of what I would say real Dionysian music. The, the 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 rhythm the beat. we don't know what the the the, the instrument uh, in Greece was the aulos which is a reed instrument so it would be like a clarinet or something like that we don't know exactly what that music sounded like but we do know that uh, with the uh, the jazz band the rhythm the strong rhythm section in there it had a mass appeal that just kept going uh, coinciding with the rise of the American Empire. And because of that, it spread all throughout the world. And so when I was, uh, I arrived in Germany in 1973 to teach at a German gymnasium, I was 25 years old, uh, had long hair and wore blue jeans. And I was greeted as a cultural hero in Germany because I was a representative of that kind of music. I got into a band and we played that kind of music together. All the other people in the band were uh, Germans. The guy who was the real musical force in the band would write songs and all the lyrics were in English because that was the cutting edge of world consciousness at, at that point. And I was sort of like the surfer riding the crest of that wave. You know, it was it was kind of nice while it lasted. It's over now, but that's the way it was back then. And it was all because of that. The, the government's promotion of that kind of music at the same time. That the government, the world is from the world is or the government, the regime is promoting this type of rock and roll music. Uh, it contributed to the extinction of the classical tradition uh, by promoting um, summer sessions at Donau Eschingen, where people like John Cage would sit at the piano and do nothing for seven minutes. Uh, also promoted at that point as part of the same. Uh, campaign of cultural imperialism, we had uh, the Americans forcing Schoenberg's music on the German people as punishment, <laughs> as punishment for what they did in World War II. I told this to my German friend, he didn't believe it. And then it turns out I, I got the actual CIA documents where it turns out that they were promoting this 12-tone music as a way of depriving the Germans of one of the richest musical heritages in the world. Uh, that's all fact. We all know that now. Uh, and that's uh, what led in many ways to the situation that the German people are in right now, a completely conquered people, uh, a, a group of people who completely internalized the commands of their oppressors. 
So uh, you know, uh, you know, a German musicologist uh, named uh, Marius Schneider, maybe. Don't know him. No. No. He made some uh, interesting researches on uh, the instruments and on how their different uh, vibrations operate uh, on the human body. So he he said practically what you are saying that uh, winds operate on our chest to improve our courage and bravery. So we have military bands, mostly brass. Yes, yes, brass bands, yes. Percussions uh, stimulate uh, the lower, pa- lower part right, of uh, right. our body. And uh, we've got African music here with uh, trance being made uh, in voodoo and shamanic rituals, uh, rituals by percussions. They're also very important in all popular music, as we see. Uh, yeah, then uh, we have... It corresponds exactly with the uh, tripartite division of the soul. Yeah. So re, uh, percussion is passion, uh, uh, harmony is uh, will, and uh, melody is reason. And Wagner declared war on melody uh, in favor of uh, uh, har- harmony, This the, the passionate element of music. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um... I was uh, listening to a Serbian monk, Arsenij Jovanovic, uh, orthodox, okay, for us heterodox, but okay. Uh, he says uh, that uh, music always is spiritual, but it depends on uh, which spirit we are talking about. That's right. That's right. Yeah. I agree with that. So the music changed scales. It went uh, from heptatonic to others in classical. But uh, it went to pentatonic scales in popular music. Now seven is a holy number of God and Guido of Arezzo invented the scale as I know. But five is another number. It's, it's a magical and occult number. I saw a documentary on B.B. King and his community at first thought his music was satanic. Now, uh, blue scales are the scales uh, which are used in popular and uh, rock music, and no heptatonic scales, uh, scale is used. Right. Are we are we not choosing the the wrong spirit listening to that kind of music? What do you think? Yes, yes, yes. They used to say uh, if you play the record backwards, you'd hear messages to Satan. I'm, I'm not sure that was. And there, there is this uh, explicit satanic element in uh, in rock and roll music. Uh, Jimmy Page, who was with Led Zeppelin, used to collect memorabilia from of the memorabilia of Aleister Crowley, who was the chief English Satanist. And there was, uh, yeah, it, it is sp- spiritual, uh, but there are bad spirits out there. So the, the monk is right. And uh, if you appeal to the bad spirits, you're going to have bad consequences. And that has happened many times. So, what's the best example of this? Well, it's uh, the Altamont Rock Festival of 1969. It was about six months after Woodstock was supposed to be a festival of peace and love. Uh, So, the Rolling Stones show up at Altamont. 
and uh, they are surrounded by about 500,000 people on a stage that is ex- very low. I mean, they're basically right up there with all those people. They've hired Hell's Angels, which is a criminal motorcycle gang, to keep the peace, and they end up clubbing the people. They're criminals, so they act like criminals. Uh, and then they start singing a song called Sympathy for the Devil. And the crowd starts going crazy. And so you can watch this. It's a, uh, there was a documentary film called Gimme Shelter uh, that was made about this tour. You can watch it happen. So the crowd goes nuts. And Mick Jagger suddenly realizes something's going on. He stops singing. And he tells everybody to calm down. And then he starts singing the music that gets them all riled up, gets them all excited. And he, he's completely oblivious to the to what his music is actually creating, the mayhem this music is creating in the crowd. And so there's my favorite moment in this is they're scared. They're really scared. And at one point, Keith Richards, the guitarist, makes the sign of the cross. You can watch it on the movie. That shows you how scared that guy was. Uh, and so the culmination of this is someone gets killed, uh, which is the culmination of the Bakke. So it's no big surprise here. The same thing happened when you when you uh, stimulate the passions, when you basically ignore reason, when you pr- when you promote a music that is nothing but the stimulation of uh, unrestrained passion, someone's going to get hurt. Uh, it happened uh, in the time of Euripides. It happened in San Francisco in 1969. It's no surprise. We know that. We know that that's and that's what happened. And uh, if you're caught, if you're invoking the devil, you're invoking the, the which is what Mick Jagger did at that point. You're invoking source forces of disorder and you shouldn't be surprised when someone dies when you do it. Yeah. That's always uh, the problem, and uh, I always uh, tell to my to my sheep uh, to stop listening to yes. music and you, to pray. And that's right. So what th- yeah. that did happen? That did happen here. Everybody got sick of it. Everybody got sick of amplified music, and there was a revival of ethnic music, uh, which is uh, always the alternative. I have never sung a Slovenian song that I know of, but I've sung many German songs. And I was in Zakopane in Poland, and there were bands in all of the pubs there, and they were playing. I think they were playing Slovakian music, but Slovakia is right there. But Europe has a wealth of uh, folk music, ethnic music, all over the continent. And it's always the alternative to what we call, what would we call, recorded music, Hollywood music, uh, American music which is ultimately folk music too. As you said, the blues is a kind of an American folk music. And this was a kind of mishmash of American Negro folk music and, and Scottish Irish folk music from the Appalachians and so on and so forth. So that's always a possibility. It's always possible to go back to your roots and disconnect from the electronic music business and start making music on your own. We tried it here, it happened here. It happened in South Bend beginning around 2000, the year 2000, when Irish music made a, made a big comeback. Uh, and I played Irish music at a pub here for 16 years, every Monday night. So it, it was a, re- a real phenomenon. Um, I could go into talking about why it failed, I think, if you're interested in that. Uh, but it was it was real while it lasted. 
Oh, we have in America, we have Slovenian musicians like, like uh, Frankie Jankovic and so on, no? if you know them. I didn't know that's what he was. Ah. That's interesting. Yeah. He is playing a uh, kind of music uh, that uh, that he 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 got from uh, Slovenian folk music. Okay, we have uh, this Oberkraina music, which uh, Slovenia is famous for, ensemble uh, Brato of the brothers Ausenik, and so on. Uh, we have this uh, quintet of uh, Alpine quintet with yes. uh, if if you if you ever heard of, you've ever heard of of this type of music I don't know Ray Ray Williams wrote a book called National Music it was a series of lectures he gave at Bryn Mawr College in Philadelphia in the 1930s yes. and he said all classical music is basically ethnic music one way or the other yeah and he said Bach speaks, spoke German, and his music was German music. So in Slovenia, this kind of music became sort of uh, alternative to 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 American uh, music and so on. But uh, it's still it's still very sensual, and so so it's yes, still a it's, problem. It's it's uh, most music, folk music, is going to be dance music. And dance music, the purpose of dance music is to make you move. That's the whole purpose of it. So it's simplified and it, it, it is to some extent sensual. You're right. Yeah. This, this, this brings up an interesting issue here uh, when it comes to sacred music. Uh, Pius X wrote a motu proprio on sacred music where he talked about how, how do you know it's sacred music? And the, basically the, the answer to that is well, maybe you better ask, how do you know it's not sacred music? And if the lower part of your body starts moving to the music, it's not sacred music. Uh, and that would mean dance music. Uh, so dance music is not appropriate for the liturgy because we want to raise the mind and heart to God. And so the paradigm for classical music would, I'm sorry, liturgical music would be palestrina. Now, this is interesting. He said, and he said drums are completely inappropriate for liturgical celebration, liturgical music. Well, if you go to Africa and you go to mass in Africa, there are drums there all the time. So I, I, knew, I once knew the head of the Instituto uh, Pontificio di Musica Sacra uh, in Rome uh, during the 80s. He was head of it in the 80s. And he talked about how, how are we going to have, how, how can you have a unified Catholic liturgical music throughout the world. How is that possible, given all of these different ethnic traditions? I'm not sure he solved, I, I don't think he solved that problem because I was just in Africa last year and they, they, they play drums. But it's like drums and choral music and it's different. It's different. Uh, and uh, uh, I, don't, I don't have the answer to that problem. I, to that problem uh, uh, and I don't know who does at this point. Okay, uh, let's go to, to my last question. We know some conciliar fathers were pushing to insert music such as the Beatles into sacred music. Uh, in Hotel California, if we look uh, in a Catholic way, 
it said uh, we have haven't had that spirit here since 1969 now i know about uh, the occult and satanic connections of the group of all the groups but uh, we really lost the right spirit since the date as yes. i know as i know uh, you're also you were also on a strange pilgrimage in those days can you tell us something about that <laughs> strange pilgrimage what are we talking about here uh, me, me the, you, German, uh, the german rock star or me the uh, when i was playing liturgical music i was playing the guitar for a while and no uh, that you were uh, you were on your way uh, oh, to on my way to Woodstock. To yeah, yes. yeah, that's right. <laughs> the sin the sin of my youth. We never made it. So but if the sin is in the intention, I committed the sin of going to Woodstock. I thought it was going to be just oh, just a little concert. Didn't know what it was about. But uh, the um, what were we talking about? About uh, the lost uh, spirit of the right oh, music. Oh yeah, that's so yes. the, 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 the crucial the crucial figure here in the the wreck uh, the wreck the train wreck that took place after Vatican II when it comes to liturgical music was Rembert Weekland. Rembert Weekland was uh, made a bishop for some reason or other. He had a degree in music from the Juilliard uh, Institute, which is the premier musical institute in in America. And he was basically put in charge of uh, creating a new kind of music for the celebration of the liturgy. Uh, and there was no one who was less qualified to do that. The main problem with Rembert Weakland was that he was a homosexual. And this, thing, this came out years later after he was Archbishop of Milwaukee. And he... Uh, was found that he paid a hundred thousand or dollars or so to his boyfriend uh, in uh, blackmail. So this is a man who hated the Catholic faith and hated Logos and hated any type of manifestation of Logos. Uh, for example, uh, some of the most beautiful churches in the world were in Milwaukee. There was a church, the cathedral, I believe, had a beautiful marble baldacchino, and uh, Rembert Weekland uh, was determined to destroy it. And people all across the world asked him not to. The city of Milwaukee said it's part of the cultural heritage. Please don't do anything. And he blew it up with dynamite. Why did he do this? He did this because he was a homosexual. And homosexuals hate uh, Logos uh, because of their activity. You, you don't believe me, read uh, E.M. Forster's novel, Maurice, and you'll find a good example of what I'm talking about. So this transposed into his music. He, he, he was incapable of, I mean, technically, I suppose, and intellectually, he was capable of playing piano and sophisticated mu music on the piano, but he was incapable of understanding the logos of sacred music. Because the logos of sacred music is against passion, certainly disordered passion like homosexuality. And so he allowed the whole music uh, scene to just disintegrate and provided no resistance to it. And so as a result, you had bad music sweeping through the churches at this time. And bad music 
is going to wreck any liturgy. I guarantee you. But music is in many ways, from an aesthetic point of view, music is the most important part of the liturgy because it sets the tone. The second part would be the, the building. You are put in a particular frame of mind when you walk into a beautiful cathedral and you hear beautiful music uh, being played. You're put in a spiritual frame of mind. If you're walking into some type of ugly Bauhaus bunker and people playing guitar music badly, or, or a, uh, uh, you're, you're going to be put in a different frame of mind. Now, the piano is certainly a sophisticated instrument, but it has no place in church whatsoever. If there's one thing that will destroy the atmosphere, the liturgical uh, atmosphere of reverence, it is a piano. As soon as the piano starts playing, you think you're in a cocktail bar. There's nothing you can do about it. It will ruin that. And so all of this type of stuff seeped in simply because of the osmotic pressure of the culture and because the man who was there to resist it couldn't resist his own disordered passions. And so he allowed it to happen. I always uh, agree with you, Dr. Jones. Uh, Thank you. Don't, don't, don't be afraid. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, in my youth, I was uh, listening to heavy metal and poppy music and so on. So I, I know what I'm talking about. So <laughs> it's not a problem. But uh, my friends, uh, many friends, uh, does not believe me when I when I talk uh, to them to them and uh, say say those things. So <laughs> tell them to listen to this interview. Okay. And, and and what you need to do among your flock is promote Slovenian folk music. That will that will correct that will drive the uh, the American imperialist uh, music out of the market. That's what has to happen on a natural level. And of course, there's liturgical music, which is another issue. Okay. Now, my uh, Pius the Tenth uh, said you don't want to perform uh, Verdi in church he loved he was an italian he loved verdi but that's not appropriate either that's too that's too operatic it's too sophisticated and it distracts from the liturgy you need to go as aristotle said the mean between the two extremes okay not too sensual not too operatic right down the middle that will enhance the religious experience rather than distracting from it yeah well, we could say that uh, interest uh some years ago when uh, his eminence cardinal book was here they they were playing uh, i believe uh, bach or some something like that and it was it was uh, too long it was a concert practically yes and you don't want to have a concert at mass bach is an incredibly spiritual uh music composer it's incredibly spiritual. Uh, I find Bach more accessible than Palestrina, who is the patron saint of Catholic music, but that's, I'm, I'm willing to, I'm open to suggestions there. But uh, yeah, but if it's, if it's, if it's uh, the Mateos Passion, you know, or something like that, you're not going to hear mass. So you have to, it has to be appropriate to the occasion. Yeah. Okay. Um, Thank you, Dr. Jones. I have no more questions. 
if you if you want to say something to to our audience or listeners uh, where can can they find everything yes go to uh, we have a big event coming up uh, logos rising the history of ultimate reality is going to be shipped from the printer uh, at the end of this month uh, you can go on to go to culturewars.com and you can sign up and get a copy of the book before we sell them out uh, you can also find Uh, my book, Dionysus Rising, uh, uh, which is my book on music, all what I said about Wagner and Nietzsche and Schoenberg and those people is in much more coherent form in that book. And all of my other writings, they're all available on uh, at culturewars.com. Thank you very much. Thank you, Father. My pleasure. God, God bless you. Thank you.